you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed podcast brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation and a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. This is where we bring you community discourse about the amazing organizations and people who come together to help make Edmonton strong. It's also where we share stories from the spaces where endowments and communities intersect. I'm Andrew Paul. And I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. This week, Shelley Touchluck, author of Witnessing Whiteness, discusses why it's so important to talk about racism. And we talk with Jim Noble about why he created the Hope Family Fund. The Edmonton Shift Lab is opening the dialogue around racism with their new speaker series this fall. Their first guest will be author and anti-racism activist Shelley Touchluck. Through her work with an organization called Aware LA, she seeks to help white people gain a deeper understanding of their personal relationships to white privilege and systematic racism. Shelley joined our producer, Lisa Pruden, to tell us about navigating the journey down the racial justice highway. My name is Shelley Touchluck. Um, I am born and raised Californian. I've been living in Los Angeles for the last 20 years, and during that time, I have been primarily an educator. My background is in psychology academically, but I have been an elementary school teacher, middle school teacher, and for about the last 13 years, I've been teaching teachers how to work with the diverse population that we have here in Los Angeles. Along that time, I've been influenced to see myself more clearly in terms of race and class and other aspects of my social identity, which has led me into my research which has been all on white racial identity and how an unconscious understanding of of race can um, end up providing an opportunity for us to do and say all sorts of things that aren't our intention. While I was going through some of your work, a theme that seemed to be recurring was one of self-discovery and honesty about racism. Can you talk a little bit about what your personal journey was? Sure. Um, I think for me, I had already become quite used to being part of a diverse community. And not only that, being one of only a few white people within my community, um, starting from a fairly early age because I was a sprinter on a track team. And in my location, what that meant is I was the only white girl on the track in terms of my sprint team. And so I got used to hearing people talk about how race was affecting them. But for many years, I just felt really good that I wasn't one of the people they seemed to be upset with. So I thought, well, gee, if I'm not actively thinking there is racial discrepancy among us and I'm actively thinking that racism is bad, then there must be nothing more for me to learn and everything must be okay on my end. And it wasn't until I started teaching elementary school that I started being asked by some of the teachers and some of the mentors at the school to start looking at how I was showing up as a white person in that space. Um, I was one of maybe only three people who were white in that school. And um, I just thought being a, you know, a well-meaning person was good enough. And they started letting me know that some of my unconscious attitudes and ideas were actually making a negative impact on the students and their families. And quite frankly, that was really hard to hear. Uh, It wasn't very pleasant to hear that my best intentions weren't good enough. Through a lot of conversation and quite frankly, through a lot of emotional labor on the part of those teachers and mentors, 
uh, they did help me to understand that just by virtue of growing up in a world that didn't ask me to investigate race, that I was kind of racially illiterate. I didn't really know how to have the conversation. I didn't know how to analyze my behavior and my actions and my thoughts and statements um, for how they could be racially troublesome or loaded. And after going through that a bit in a very informal way, I decided to go back to school and that caused me to start investigating that topic more academically and formally and putting language to it. And that was all in about the late 90s, early 2000s. So it's been about 15 years since then, since I've been starting to have more conversations about this and writing about it and talking about it. What really changed for me was when I started the dissertation process and needed to reach out to a whole bunch of other white people to find out um, what was going on that I wasn't really seeing, I found out that I wasn't alone. I found out that there were a lot of other people who were struggling to come to understand these issues just like me. And that's what started me personally in a process of trying to make tools available for people so that they could come to understand these issues in a way that, quite frankly, wasn't so hard, that didn't take so long. It took a long time for me to start to understand and think, the more aware we become, the better able we are to do a good job uh, working interracially with one another without stepping on each other's toes. Um, I want to jump back to your mentioning of the social and emotional labor that people of color are often expected to shoulder. What made you aware of that? Unfortunately, it was years after I required that labor for myself. <laughs> It was actually, um, I would say, probably during the dissertation process, maybe five years into my own coming to understand these issues, I was interviewing um, a bunch of white people and people of color, those who had been working together for many years, and it just became evident that people of color, when deciding to invest in a white friend or colleague, they were often put in the teaching role. They were the ones who were helping their white colleague and friend come to understand issues of themselves. And oftentimes that meant quite a long period of kind of argument and working through defensiveness. And when I would talk to the white people, they would just be so happy and grateful to have this wonderful person of color who was a friend to them and not really understand how hard it had been for that person of color to actually be part of that process with them. And it was hearing so many stories that replicated that theme that I started to reflect that that was exactly my story too. You had mentioned the defensiveness that people can experience when talking about race and racism. And there's also oftentimes a sense of guilt that can come up. Um, how do you address these when you're talking with people about race? For me, what has been extremely helpful both personally and when talking with other people is to name and to recognize that racism is happening as part of a system. It's not something that any of us individually has put into place. And quite frankly, the majority of us have been conditioned into this system to play the role that we've been conditioned to play. And so not seeing it in front of us isn't something that I feel like we should be blamed for. I feel like becoming responsible to see it in front of us is something that we can do actively and that there's nothing shameful or, or a reason to feel guilty about taking up that activity of becoming responsible for seeing what otherwise has been pretty much hidden from us. 
The common culture within most white communities has been to not talk about race. And in not talking about it, we haven't been trained to see the issues. And not being trained to see the issues, of course, we're not going to be very proficient in recognizing everything that's going on around us. And so in terms of the guilt and shame thing, there, part of it is that you know, shame is about feeling badly about who you are as a person. And I don't know anybody in the anti-racist community who thinks that people should feel badly about who they are as a person, partially because we didn't start this. Um, it's our duty to do something about it, but also because it's not helpful. Um, I don't know anybody who's trying to inspire a sense of guilt and shame because that is not what gets us to get up and get focused and learn more. And personally, I have found it to be such a liberating experience to understand how my very good intentions were actually hurting people, that it allowed me to stop doing those things. And it's allowed me to help other people to stop doing those things and to have a deeper understanding of it. It doesn't mean it's not complicated. There's been plenty to learn and there's plenty more for me to learn. And every person is different. And yet holding all of that as one big, giant, nuanced complexity of what it means to be part of life is how I usually offer this as a conversation for other people. Because so many people, when they arrive to this conversation and become very authentic and honest and vulnerable about feeling insecure about all of this, feeling like I don't have the answers to all of this, I think I've, I've missed the boat on some of this, um, it's shocking how accepting so many people are of that position and how much love and generosity is given to help people learn and understand. And boy, you know, 20 years later from when I got initiated into all this conversation, there's so many resources and networks and people who are helping to support one another. And I feel like there's just so much goodness that's coming out of this conversation now that I find a lot more people are either moving aside to the side from guilt and shame, never going through it, or moving through it more quickly than I've seen in the past. And I think that's really useful. Um, all of that to say it doesn't mean that one shouldn't feel bad when they've done something that's injured somebody. Some amount of guilt for having actually caused someone pain or being part of a system that is continuing to cause people pain, it makes sense. But in the work that I do with the community I work with, we are, we're always looking at the question, okay, so how big is that ball of guilt you're carrying around, though? Is it something you know that you're working to unpack and deal with, and therefore you can carry it with you in a way that keeps you moving forward? Or is it the kind of thing that makes you paralyzed and stops you from taking good steps forward? Because if that's how we're living with it, then it's not doing us any good. And so that's, that's the way the conversation often starts. I really like how you're able to hold in the conversation that idea of complexity. One of the analogies that you use is the social justice highway. Could you describe that a little? This sort of metaphor idea came out of, honestly, a little bit of my concern about groups who get so locked in with this is the right way to do it, this is how you ought to do it, that um, it ended up becoming a bit of a punishment um, to be new at these ideas or to not be where someone else was or to be making mistakes along the journey. And so um, what I came up with was this idea of the racial justice freeway. 
And it just makes sense to me that, you know, there are some people who have been doing this long enough, they're good enough, they are super skilled, and they are in the fast lane. They are moving forward. Some people, we've got carpool lanes over here where people are getting together and all sharing the road, (laughs) sharing the car to move down the highway at a much more rapid pace. And for all the folks who are in organizations and activist networks who are out doing protests and collecting signatures and doing all the sorts of things that are helping society to come to awareness and move it forward very quickly, all of that can be very intimidating for someone who's brand new to the ideas. For someone who's brand new to these ideas, um, that individual is just merging on, probably into the slow lane to start. And so what I try to identify is that there are middle lanes, there are slow lanes, there are fast lanes, and I want to honor and acknowledge that regardless of where you are on the freeway, regardless of where I am on the freeway, we're heading in the same direction. There might be conversations we need to have to to help ensure that we're not getting into accidents or that we're not merging into each other's lanes in a way that is going to be destructive. But the biggest thing I wanted to avoid was, number one, for people just getting on the freeway to feel pressured and pushed that they have to zoom over into the fast lane right away in order to be decent people, when quite frankly, oftentimes, that zooming across the lanes ends up creating a whole bunch of confusion and backup. And alternatively, for those who are in the fast lane to unequivocally bemoan or berate or be upset with those who are just merging onto the, into the slow lane, that's not helpful either. I'm a person who has positioned myself probably across all the different lanes at some point, um, but I spend a lot of time working with folks who are just getting into this work. That's a position that fits my, school, my skill set, and it's one that I think is really valuable. And I think for each of us, finding that place of how we contribute to this work in a way that is able to be committed to for the long haul is what we need to, to all do so that people aren't trying to move off the freeway as quickly as they can. Because ultimately, what we're trying to do is get as many people on board as possible and keep people moving forward as much as possible in a supportive way. So that's a big idea of it. And then there's so much to play with in there in terms of what it means to have a driver's license and what does it mean to get insurance and how does that accountability show up in here and all the nuanced conversations that racial justice folks need to have with one another. There's openings and room to play with that analogy to to make it make sense. Because of the complexity of racism, it's hard to know whether it's within a conversation or on your own journey. It's hard to know where to start. So how can we recognize an on-ramp? I think on-ramps come in various forms. Sometimes the individual sitting next to you is an on-ramp. Sometimes it's a book. Sometimes it's a film or an article or an event. Um, Something to get you opened up and motivated and teaching you something new. I think ultimately when we are new and so new at this that we're trying to figure out, I'm not even sure what the right on-ramp is. I want to make sure I'm getting on the right freeway. I think that it deserves some exploration and a lot of questions and a lot of listening. I think it's easy to become critical quickly um, because everywhere we go, we bring our full life experience with us. And so I, as a white person, I show up to a new experience, a new event, a new community And if it doesn't look like what I'm used to, I might tend toward early criticism. 
And yet, if I stick around and ask questions and start to live into what is this group's reality and what are they reacting to and about and what are they working toward, that can help me understand whether I'm needing to become more open and move past what has been normalized for me. I also feel like there's an exploration to do. Um, There's so many people who are doing things in so many different ways that, you know, finding something that has some level of resonance does make sense. The second book that I wrote was called Living in the Tension, and I'm only naming it because there's something that's become very important to me in all of this, which is the idea, two things. One is that two things can be true at the exact same time. So I can go and say, ah, here's this group. They're doing this kind of work. I've been told this is good work, so I need to be with them and do this work this way. Well, it might be that they're doing work in a way that is pushed so far beyond your personal knowledge base and boundaries that it's not the right fit in that moment. It doesn't mean that they're doing the work badly or that it's not going to have a positive impact. It just might not be where you belong in that exact moment. And so being able to hold this idea of there are some things that are going to be right for me, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be right for everybody. And then the converse as well. And the other part of the living in the tension idea that's been very meaningful to me is the idea that I know that in this work, if I'm 100% comfortable, it probably means I'm not growing anymore. So I'm consistently looking for what's that growing edge? What's that thing that is pushing my own understanding into a new learning place? And that new learning place is usually uncomfortable, at least on some level. And so how do we get comfortable being a little bit uncomfortable? So that just because we show up in our listening doesn't mean we have to become super critical and and say the first thing that comes into our heads or become the person doing everything to support the institution or the, the organization we might need to we might need to be uncomfortably sitting in something in order to learn about it better it can be a real challenge to know when to use our voice and when not to use our voice when to decide we know something and when we don't decide to know something or that we do know something as a white person, it's a very tricky step to figure out how much has this been my conditioning and something I need to break through versus how much is something that I'm really authentically understanding in a deep way that is true in a way that it's noticing something that's not going to be healthy for me. And I think that's a difficult dance that all of us need to support each other to to do as best as possible. Going back to the emotional work, do you have any suggestions for how we can share in that emotional work? I think the huge call and what I've been responding to for the last 15 years has been how do we, and I'm speaking specifically for me as a white person in my white community and those of us who haven't been raised in a way that has caused us to be constantly doing this work, is to become part of groups and organizations that are helping to educate ourselves, um, helping to bring each other into uh, increased awareness. I have been absolutely blessed to be working with a group called Aware LA. It's Alliance of White Anti-Racists Everywhere. It's in Los Angeles, and you can look them up at awarela.org. 
And we are an all-volunteer organization of people where at least one aspect of what we do is holding monthly meetings where we get together and we talk and we share and we create workshops for one another so that we can not just learn about racism and how it's affecting other people, although that is certainly part of the work we need to do. But what we've discovered is so many white folks who enter this conversation think that, okay, what I need to do is just hear these really horrible and hard stories from people of color. Well, there's plenty of that. It's been taped. It's been written about. There's plenty of ways for us to learn about what people of color have gone through without needing a person of color to actually go through that storytelling in front of us. So number one, access the resources that are out there. Number two, well, what does that do to us inside? For me, it twisted me up emotionally inside. I needed a way to get that out, to get it untwisted. And for a while, I would turn to my friends of color to help get the validation I needed to feel like I was a decent person in the world. Am I going in the right direction? What do you think about this? Hey, I heard about that. I want to run this by you. Well, some of that may be okay if you've got a person in your life who's really engaged with you and interested and willing to do that. But boy, oh boy, have my best friends of color been so thrilled that I don't need to bring all of that to them because I have a white community that I've helped to cultivate. Not that it's, it was already there. I've been part of helping to cultivate it so that we can turn to each other to figure things out about what's going on for us. How do we create an identity process around being a white anti-racist person that is healthy, that is whole, that is vibrant and alive and invested in creating the kind of world that all of us want to live in, one that is marked by equity and inclusion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so a lot of the resources that I've been working at putting out into the world for the last you know, 10 or 15 years have been really about how do I help provide resources to other people who aren't in Los Angeles, who can't come to our meetings, to help them create small groups that can become larger groups, that can become networks of people who are doing that work with each other as other white people so that we can do better when we are in our multiracial spaces, which is always, of course, extremely important. I really like that, the more cohesive sense of being an ally. So not so much an ally who really leans on the shoulder of, but can be there to actually support. Yeah, it's really interesting that that word ally has been getting kind of a bad rap these days um, because a lot of people have, I think, rightly named that for many people um, who take up the idea of ally, it has a certain suggestion that when a white person is trying to be an ally to a person of color, what it means is a white person is doing something on behalf of or in service of or just for the person of color. I think the, the term that I'm hearing a lot these days is a solidarity partner, someone who is working in solidarity in order to help make the kind of systemic change and cultural change that we want that's going to benefit all of us. So it's really about can we have a framework of what all of this means that allows white people to understand that we are not only doing this for people of color, we are doing this for ourselves too. Our own humanity is at stake in this. Our entire communities and their lives are all at stake because we need to live in an environment that is inclusive, that is open, that is generous and loving and has healed from all of this racism. And so I personally feel like I have a stake in this. I'm not just doing this for other people over there. I'm, this is about saying I'm invested and I'm invested for all of us, not just for somebody else. 
to benefit all of us and create the kind of community that all of us will be better served by. So, Shelley, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your ideas. You're welcome. It's been lovely talking with you. A big thanks to Shelley Touchluck for sharing her time with us. Shelley will be coming to Edmonton on Thursday, September 27th as part of the Edmonton Shift Lab Speaker Series. For more information, go to edmontonshiftlab.ca. If you'd like to learn more about Shelley or about Aware LA, be sure to check our show notes for the links. Here at Edmonton Community Foundation, we are lucky to work with some very generous donors who create funds that help support a wide variety of charities throughout Edmonton. Today, we'd like to introduce you to Jim Noble. Hi, I'm Jim Noble, and I am the founder for the Family Hope Fund. I wanted to help the local health charities. It just seemed like they they all need so much help. But I also wanted it set up so that that would be something that would go forward in the future. You know, it's nice if you can put on a fundraiser this year and do something to help someone out. But then next year and the year after, and I won't always be here. And so I liked the idea of setting up an endowment fund. So 10 years from now, 100 years from now, what we did today is still creating grants in the community and, and helping out generations in the future. It's, it's paying it forward. My grandparents were pretty special to me. The Hope Fund was named after my grandparents. Their last name was Hope. And my grandfather passed away a very long time ago. Back in the 80s, I was just a teenager. My grandmother, on the other hand, hung on until I was 40. She did live to see the first few months of the Hope Fund, and she was one of the first people that wrote a check. I'm, I'm glad that even though it was only for the last few months of her life, she got to see it and take part in it. After uh, my grandmother passed away in 2008, my family published a cookbook that started with her recipes and, and with the rest of the family throwing in, in their favorites. We did that as a fundraiser. It was very, very successful. There, there's one thing about an endowment. Somewhere along the line, I had the thought if a couple of hundred years ago, somebody had put aside just one dollar or one pound or one gold coin or whatever it was where they were, how big that that pound or that gold coin or that dollar would have grown to be helping the community now. So that that's something that we're doing because in the future, what we can really be doing to to help the local health charities when that money's been sitting in trust for 50 or 100 or 200 years, it's going to have a really serious impact. And I like to think that people will remember all of us and what we did for them then. Thanks to Jim Noble for telling us about the Jim Noble Family Hope Fund. If you'd like to learn more about Jim's fund or how to create a fund of your own, you can visit ecfoundation.org or find the links in our show notes. That brings us to the end of this week's show. Thanks again to Shelley Touchluck and Jim Noble for sharing their stories with us. And thank you for listening. Your ideas mean a lot to us, so please remember to fill out our listener survey at thewellendowedpodcast.com. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for sharing your time with us. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Bonking and Andrew Paul. Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.